Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, and with me today is my usual co-host, Ward Carroll, the Director of Marketing and Outreach for the Naval Institute and the author of Punk's War. Ward, how are you? I'm great. It's a beautiful day here in Annapolis. Uh, it looks like the heat's actually going to break tomorrow, and tomorrow, we should have yep. a few days in the 80s, and we're getting into fall weather. Maybe. Back to school here. Almost time for the first home football game of the year, Navy versus Holy Cross, and that's an in-house rivalry since the CEO of the Naval Institute is a graduate of Holy Cross. As is the, uh, the, the head of our foundation. Yes. In fact, she was a lacrosse player on full scholarship while she was there. Wow. Yeah. So uh, we definitely have some, we're going to have to do some, I don't know, fill somebody's office with balloons or something, you know, yeah, or maybe have, get Bill the Goat to come over here. All right. We got right? to have a tailgate. Something. Yeah. This, yeah. this no. will be fun. Are you going to the game? I, I didn't know. I, you didn't I, know. I'll make it a, pl- I'll make a plan to do it. Is it next, what, what weekend is it? It's August 31st. I won't be, I'll be in uh, New Hampshire. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So today the CNO change of charge happened, not a change of command, change of charge. Farewell, Admiral Richardson. Uh, hello, or hail, Admiral Gilday. So with Admiral Richardson's departure, it is the, we only have one classmate of the class of 82 left on active duty. That's Ad, Admiral Davidson. Commander um, of Indo-PACOM. Indo-PACOM. Yep. So, uh, you know, that's uh, a poignant moment for, for our class. Um, I happened to catch um, the uh, change of charge ceremony on the Navy's Twitter feed and, uh, you know, sort of the, the usual straight down the middle of sentiments back and forth. And uh, so uh, we'll look forward to uh, the tone that uh, Admiral Gilday sets here right out of the gate. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. And and if you haven't had a chance to read it yet, I would recommend uh, the piece that USNI News ran a day or two ago uh, where Megan Eckstein uh, was able to um, do an interview, 30-minute interview with Admiral Richardson as his departure from, from CNO. And she uh, asked him the, the hard questions. She asked a lot of questions, but she asked the hard questions. Fat Leonard, she asked about Fitzgerald McCain. She asked about... Uh, uh, Admiral Moran, the you know the the, the change of CNO uh, elect or or uh, select, I guess you will, uh, and so you know, and, and he didn't dodge the questions either. So it was a really good um, interview, well done by Megan, and uh, it's on USNI news.usni.org. So uh, always impressed with what uh, Sam and Megan and company are doing uh, with our news reporting. Uh, a couple other things that are happening the. Uh, September, October issue of Naval History Magazine will uh, hit hit your inboxes if you're a subscriber. Let me get a good picture of that. Uh, Air Power at Lady Golf is the um, uh, is the cover story. Beautiful picture there of uh, the the battle at Lady Golf. Uh, we also have the winner of the CNO Naval History Essay Contest. The uh, Commander Joel Holwitz essay is in uh, this episode, this uh, issue of the Naval History Magazine. So look for it. It will be posted on our website online on 1 September or probably 31 uh, August. Uh, And uh, we've talked uh, for a couple weeks now about the excitement that we have about the Top Gun section in the September issue of Proceedings. And we're going to go out to Tailhook 5 through uh, 8 8, uh, uh, September out in Reno, Nevada. We have about 24 pages of the magazine dedicated to the history of Tailhook. uh, Sorry, not Tailhook, uh, Top Gun. Uh, written by uh, five uh, uh, 
graduates of that program to uh, commanding officers of the school, uh, going all the way back from the start, 1969, the Alt Report, et cetera. And so that's in the uh, uh, upcoming issue, the September issue of Proceedings, which is really uh, exciting. And we'll have 2,500 copies of that uh, distributed out at, uh, at Tailhook. So Absolutely. If so you're, if you're a member and you're you know going to be getting this, this uh, issue, obviously, in your mailbox, this one is a keeper. Um, of course, they're all keepers in the history since 1874 till now. But good work to you, Bill, and the the periodicals team for creating this this special issue. We had sort of this vision of what we might do based on the fact it was the 50th anniversary of the creation of the Navy Fighter Weapons School, and uh, you know your team has seriously put together something that's uh, very special. As you said, we have current and former instructors as well as graduates and people uh, talking about what's the history of what is really the first Navy Center of Excellence. And so uh, that's really going to be great stuff. Yeah, excellent. Uh, Okay, well, let's get to our guest today. So in the August issue of Proceedings, I'll hold this up for the Coast Guard issue of uh, Proceedings always. Um, We've got uh, on the line from uh, North Carolina, we've got uh, Dr. Salvatore Mercagliano, Whose, uh, whose article is called To Be a Modern Maritime Power. It starts on page 58 and 59 uh, of the August issue of Proceedings. And so I'll just uh, tee this up a little bit, and then we'll let uh, uh, Dr. Mercagliano talk about a couple of things that uh, led him to, uh, to write this. So he starts off, Ask a naval professional which nation is the greatest sea power in the world today. By most common definitions of the term, the answer is the United States. Presence on every ocean, most capable surface warships, naval aviation, Marine Corps, submarine forces, etc. Yet, does this equate to the Mahanian definition of sea power? Ask the same naval professional these questions. What three flags fly from 40% by tonnage of the world's commercial fleet? Which three nations built 90% of the world's ships? Which of the world's container trade, or how much of the world's container trade is controlled by three mega alliances? And who are the five largest operators of tanker tonnage? So, Dr. Mercagliano, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me, Bill and Ward. So, tell us a little bit about what uh, the itch was that got you to, to, to write this article. Well, I was a uh, uh, former merchant mariner. I sailed uh, uh, for seven years for the Military Seal of Command. Uh, then I embarked on an academic career. And uh, recently, a couple of years ago, I was asked, actually two years ago, to moderate a panel down at the uh, Sea, Air, and uh, uh, Space Expo done by uh, uh, the Navy League on strategic sea lift. And uh, I was approached by several people uh, to provide some background information on the Merchant Marine and, and its history. And I, I really came to realize, being a huge fan, I've, I've been an advocate of proceedings for a long time, and enjoy it and always uh, uh, look forward to it. But one of the things I thought was missing was really a good primer on, on what's the commercial aspect of shipping today. And so I actually penned this article, put it in for an earlier CNO Naval History essay. Uh, it didn't win, it didn't come in, but actually I got contacted by you all and you thought it was good enough to publish. And so I, I've been a, a big advocate for really expressing what's going on on the other half of the ocean while a lot of focus is on sea power, the Navy's projection of force. The other aspect is that commercial aspect. And I think that commercial aspect, which can be equated to a use of soft power in many ways, uh, doesn't get talked about or or mentioned enough. And so I thought I'd sit down and and write this and, and like I said, pose five questions 
that I would put to almost any professional and see if they knew it. And these five really were the ones that kind of had the uh, most difficult uh, uh, answer for a lot of professionals. So I thought, well, let me write this down and, 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 and put this out there for everybody. So how does soft power or wh- why is soft power necessary uh, in the execution of warfare? Maybe some of the audience doesn't, doesn't know why we would care. Sure. I, I mean, I think one of the things that, that you can see right now, I mean, a great example of the application of soft power is, is the, the recent deployment of USNS Comfort right now down in South America. You know, here she is visiting all these countries, providing that soft power projection. But again, most people don't know uh, commonly that the, the crew, the operating crew on that ship is a, is a merchant mariner crew. And so there, there's a commercial aspect even to uh, what, what ostensibly looks like a large Navy presence. But also, I, I think one of the things that we need to remember is, you know, you go back to the founding of the U.S. Navy, a lot of the, the, the founding core members of the U.S. Navy, even many of the ships, came from the commercial aspect. And I think that commercial military relationship, which was really kind of well together during the age of sail, has really dispersed during the age of steam and iron. And the application of soft power is your ability to get in there and, and have a trading partner, uh, being able to go in there and sometimes the arrival of an American ship bringing, for example, uh, food aid, uh, you know, USAID, USAID equipment and supplies along Africa being delivered by American ships is, is always an important element. You know, Maersk, Alabama, the very famous incident of the piracy in 2009, uh, that was a U.S. food ship that was grabbed. If, if that food had been being transported on a foreign flag vessel, I don't think the, the, the response uh, of the U.S. Navy would have been anywhere close to the size you saw with a U.S. ship. And so the application of soft power is essential. And more importantly, it is a key ingredient for the United States to execute its military power without the ability of, of, of a commercial element to supply the fleet, to transport the Army and the, the Marines and the Air Force. That's, a, that's a, a big hole right now that's developing larger and larger uh, in the United States as our, our commercial assets and fleets diminish and world fleet increases, particularly uh, those flags of conveniences out there. So, Sal, tell us, uh, for, answer the first question is, uh, so you got uh, what three flags fly from 40% by tonnage of the world's commercial fleet. What's the answer to that one? So the, the three largest uh, carriers right now are Panama, the Marshall Islands, and Liberia. And uh, the irony of those three is post-World War II, you saw a proliferation of these, what were literally called open registries, countries where you can go register your ship. Uh, there's low cost in registering them there. Uh, the, the rules and regulations are a lot lighter than in the United States. And it becomes much cheaper to move goods on a, a uh, vessel that has lower operating costs, lower construction costs. And ironically, those three flags were all created by the United States. Panama was created in the lead-up to World War II. Uh, with, due to the Neutrality Act, we had to get fuel oil, particularly 100-octane fuel for aircraft to Great Britain. And so we reflagged several Panamanian, uh, we, we asked Esso, uh, was today Exxon, to reflag some of their tankers to a Panamanian registry, and they can get under the Neutrality Acts. We did the same thing with Liberia in the 1950s to create a, a, a stable West African country that had an economy. Of course, it's not. Uh, it, it descended into pretty much chaos, and that's where you see the emergence of the Marshall Islands flag. 
but there are others out there. But those three represent 40% of the world's fly, uh, world's commercial tonnage. So for our listeners, uh, it, for a, a ship company, a ship owner to register their ship uh, in Panama or in the Marshall Islands versus in the United States, what's the difference in cost? Uh, it, it's substantially less. And, and I, I, it depends on the type of vessel and, and, and uh, the size of it. But the biggest issue is not so much the, the cost per se, it's the fact that you can now crew that vessel with non-Americans. So if you're a U.S. flag vessel, for example, you have to have 75% U.S. citizens on board. Uh, that's going to be a higher standard of living, a higher wage than you would if you flag it overseas. So, for example, on on a, uh, a Marshall Islands flagship, you could have Ukrainian officers, Filipino unlicensed off uh, unlicensed uh, personnel on board, and you therefore have that lower operating cost. It's it's usually estimated that to, to operate a U.S. flagship versus a foreign flagship is is uh, the the cost figure differential is about six million dollars is a, usually the number that is used. And matter of fact, that's the number we use to fund uh, uh, the 60 ships that are in the maritime security program, 60 American-flagged commercial ships that the U.S. government gives a, 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 a payment to roughly about $6 million per year to keep them in the U.S. fleet. And we count on those 60 ships to uh, maintain our logistics supply line overseas. So that, that you're talking about $6 million per year? That's the... Per- I mean, per it's not per, per deployment. Oh, okay, per year per ship. Got it. And and is that those sixty ships? Is that what we call the ready reserve force? No, no, no. The 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 you you have different levels. So, for example, you you have uh, right now in in the world, the U.S. currently resides at twenty second place in terms of number of ships in the world. Uh, it has a little over around thirty six hundred ships, but that's thirty six ship. 3,600 ships over 100 gross tons. So that includes ocean-going vessels, coastal vessels, offshore supply vessels, tugs and barges. If you go to vessels over 1,000 gross tons, what we would refer to basically as ships, there's only about 179 left. And this is the, the huge decline we've seen happen really since 1950. And of those uh, 179, uh, about 156 are military uh, useful. That's what uh, the Maritime Administration identifies those as. And within that, that fleet, there are 60 vessels, largely container ships, but also some roll-on, roll-off vessels, some heavy lift vessels that are given this. Uh, they enroll in what's called the Maritime Security Program. It was started in 1996, initially just 47 ships, and then it was expanded to 60 ships. And, and so they're a subset. Now, those ships are, are, are used to transport supplies for the military today. So if you see a tank battalion going over to Estonia on a NATO deployment, they'll probably be carried on board one of the roll-on, roll-off ships of American roll-on, roll-off carriers, for example, who are a uh, MSP uh, shipping firm. We have in the United States, in outports all along the, the coast, 61 vessels, about 40... Six of them are maintained by the, ready, uh, by the Maritime Administration, and 15 or so are maintained by the Military Sealift Command. Those are those reserve surge vessels that, in time of war, would be activated, go to ports of embarkation, load on board all the equipment material you need, and we'd surge them out. And uh, the issue with the Ready Reserve Force is the age of the vessels. 
recent GAO report, recent testimonies by the Maritime Administrator and the Commander of Transcom have highlighted the, 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 the danger of the uh, increasing age of these vessels, the unreliability of these uh, these uh, uh, ships. That was the this is really the subject of the the, the paper uh, uh, I, I submitted for this year's naval history uh, uh, essay, which was uh, suppose they gave a war and the merchant marine didn't come. Which uh, took second place, by the way. We'll publish that probably uh, in the November or December issue of Proceedings. Um, so, so as we talk about peer conflict, what's what's the answer to that hypothetical? So, you know, what what if the merchant? What if what if the bubble goes up today? You know, peer peer conflict, and we're in the state we are. It, it's pretty precarious, actually. I would tell you, it, it, it's a very difficult thing. You know, there was a, a recent uh, uh, information published uh, that the Navy has announced that you know, in, in case of a true peer to peer conflict, the Navy would not prov- be able to provide escorts, for example, for the Navy. They literally told the maritime administrator and the commander of Military Seal of Command, that your ships are on your own. And, you know, that would involve, you know, if you go to the Korea scenario, for example, well, if, if you have to get to Korea, you've got to bring the ships that are sitting prepositioned in Diego Garcia. That means a transit of the Straits of Malacca. And more importantly, that means running past the South China Sea. And if you've looked at what the Chinese are doing on those islands, you know, they've saturated the South China Sea with surface-to-surface missile range. And, you know, to avoid the South China Sea means a deployment of thousands of extra miles to get there. And more importantly, the readiness issue of the fleet is such, because of the increasing age and, and deferment of, of maintenance, and because of the loss of, of shipyards and maintenance facilities in the United States, uh, recently at that uh, March uh, testimony by Admiral Busby of the Maritime Administration, he identified 15 of the 61 ships as being incapable of sailing. And, and so, you know, you had a, you, right off the bat, you had a net reduction in capabilities of almost 20%. And because we have built such large vessels and, and we have only such few vessels, they, you know, loss of one type, one ship would be a catastrophic event in the sailing of a, of a scenario. So it, it, it is, I would argue, more dangerous than it has been in, since 1914 in, when World War I happened. Wow, that's a that's a bold statement. So let's move on to your second question, which was, which three nations built ninety percent of the world's ships today? What's the answer to that? The, the the answer to that is very simple. It's the Far East. It's China. It's the Republic of Korea, and it's Japan. And if you want to understand how the plan, the the People's Liberation Army's Navy, can pump out Type fifty five, Type fifty twos, at the rate they do, you just have to look at their commercial shipbuilding. Uh, Product and this is something we had learned in World War One, World War Two, where we basically knew that if we had a commercial shipbuilding capability in times of war or national emergency, we can gear those over and flip them over and start producing warships. And you know, it, it, sometimes the, the, there's an argument. Well, you know, a, a commercial ship is much different than a warship, and, and that that is true. There's no question about that. But there are some fundamental concepts that are the same in, in vessels. And having the ability to build ships commercially means that in times of, uh, of, of war, more importantly, if you want to build up your military assets, you can build in on that infrastructure. You know, if you look at Maersk, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, the Republic of Korea, for example, Republic of Korea built for Maersk lines these monster container ships called the Triple E's. They, they are just 
huge in size. You're talking about almost 1,200 feet long, capable of carrying 20,000 containers. Uh, they built 20 of those in three years. Wow. And, and they, they did it in modular, oh 20 God. of them in three years. Wow. And, and, they, and they did it in modular construction. Uh, and, and basically, they took the, the, the shipbuilding techniques that we perfected as a nation, guys like Henry J. Kaiser during World War II, and they have just amped them up to a level that we have not seen before. And, and that's why you're seeing this huge ship con- construction going on. And what, what's even more disturbing is that in both China and Korea, the shipyards are consolidating together into larger entities. And that gives even more capability for them. Both Korea and China obviously subsidize their shipbuilding heavily. Uh, And so they're able to produce ships in in numbers that we have not seen before. And more importantly, they're doing it fast, quickly. There's some throwback to it, I would argue. Chinese steel and, and, and steel being used in modern ship construction is not as strong as has been used in American steel construction. One of the reasons why our ships last 40, 50 years is because the steel is that much better. If you look at a ship built overseas, the steel tends to corrode, uh, cake away, and, and so after 10, 15 years, uh, you have huge costs of replacement, and it literally becomes cheaper to just replace the ship than to, than to repair it. Yeah, so you mentioned on page uh, 59, there's the... Uh, uh, that the two largest uh, Korean shipyards, Hyundai Industries and uh, Daewoo, uh, that they're merging, and then that the response to that from China was that they took two th- their two largest shipyards, China Shipbuilding Industry Corporation and China State Shipbuilding Corporation, and announced their merger to count- counter the Korean merger. So this is a uh, it's like an arms race going on in uh, in the western or in the Western Pacific. Uh, to be able to build the most ships, you know, the, uh, in, in the most modern shipyards quickly, right, and cheaply. Correct. So uh, is there any political will to fix this problem, do you think, Sal? I mean, this I, I'm surprised this hasn't been framed, um, you know, in, in the public forum uh, as a jobs issue, you know, uh, under the whole, uh, you know, bring American jobs back and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so that's part A. Part B is if we had the political will to fix it, do we have the the industrial base and the manpower base to, to even attempt to remedy this problem? Well, to your first question, Ward, I, I think one of the reasons that I really wrote this article and put it in the proceedings is there's not a comparable venue to voice this issue on the commercial side. You know, Proceedings provides a great forum where, you know, the Navy, Marine Corps, all the armed services, the sea services can, can, can voice these issues. It doesn't exist in the commercial. Matter of fact, the commercial is, is competitive. It is very much uh, kind of stovepiped in its construction. Uh, you know, the unions, uh, the shipfaring unions are a different group than the shippers themselves, than, than the uh, shipbuilders. And so you have a lot of conflicting views and issues, it's very hard to get them all on the same page because they always worry that if someone gets a leg up, the other one is losing. It, it, is, it, is, it is almost like in the days of when Army and Navy competed against each other vehemently for, for resources. Not that they still don't do that today, but, th- but this was, this is, this, there's no overarching agency. Even the Maritime Administration, uh, uh, Barad, uh, Admiral Busby, who, who's a former Navy Admiral, he commanded Military Seal of Command, uh, he's been a pro-advocate. He's been, he's been probably one of the best maritime administrators that have ever been in the office. But he has to deal with, with 
the political bureaucracy of having a, a agency that in itself he doesn't oversee the entire maritime sector of the United States. Now, on the industrial side, on the base side, yes, there, there is still the potential to fix this and improve it. Uh, the problem is that that's slowly beginning to change, and, and, and you're going to start seeing yards go away and cl- shut down. We've seen, if you look at the, the history of shipbuilding and in the commercial industry, it's like a sine wave. It'll go up and down at times. Usually the inverse of the Navy, ironically. Usually when the Merchant Marine is big, the Navy's small. Uh, that changed. That flipped in the 20th century. They were basically in line with each other at the very first half of the 20th century. And then post-World War II, it, they separated. And, and one of the things is, is to get that information out. Of course, this is, becomes political. If you have a shipyard in your district, you fight hard for this. But most Americans are just not cognizant of the role the maritime industry plays in their everyday life. As long as they get their goods on the shelf in Walmart, does it really matter how it came across the ocean? And most Americans don't care. And if we were not a superpower, we wouldn't care either, to tell you the truth. You know, as long as ships are arriving at our ports, dumping off goods, that's fine. But if you go to that peer-to-peer confrontation, if, if for some reason we face off against a foe, and most of our raw material and goods are being delivered by, for example, uh, container ships of these huge, these three huge mega alliances, all a, a, a peer like China has to do is go asymmetric, threaten a company, hey, if you continue trading with the United States, I'll sink one of your 20,000 box container ships. Uh, that's a huge loss. It's a huge massive. The company would probably shy away, lay their ships up, then take the risk of losing the vessels. And, and you know, there's a whole aspect of commercial asymmetric warfare that is potentially dangerous when 80% of the world's containers are controlled by just these three huge alliances, and none of them are American firms. Yeah, that, that's kind of the what surprises me. And I, I know you, you say that, you know, we generally don't care as long as it shows up in, in Walmart. But I think part of the dynamic out there now as a function of, of the president and some of the rhetoric is there is a portion of America that now cares, right? And Or they're being more uh, being made aware of the fact that we should care. And I caught the president's rally in Pennsylvania, I think it was last week, but he's talking about the steel industry. We got to bring steel back, great American steel. And and when you said that American ships last longer because our, our the quality of our steel is better, it, it sort of strikes me that if you armed, let's say, and I don't want to get political, but if you arm Stephen Miller with the first five bullets that Bill read, that could become a plank of, of a campaign. You know what I mean? And and so is this really an existential jobs uh, issue, potentially? Is this an existential industrial base issue? Or is this, like you said, is this unsolvable because of the nature of the agencies that oversee it and uh, the other things that you've outlined? We, we have, as, as a historian, we've had this issue happen before. I always go back to the analogy of, of, of World War I. 1914 hits, and we don't get involved in the war for three years. But at that time, our merchant marine consisted of only 11% of the world's fleet, and we only carried 8% of our own cargo. And when war was declared in 1914, all of a sudden the German merchant fleet, which was the second largest in the world, ran for cover. The British merchant fleet focused on the war mission, and American goods and American cargoes piled up at the docks, 
and America plunged into a huge economic recession. And as a result of that, President Wilson declared the first national emergency in American history, saying we need to build ships. We have a merchant ship crisis. And you, it leads you to the Shipping Act of 1916, which creates this U.S. Shipping Board. And then once we get into the war, the Emergency Fleet Corporation, that starts building ships. And we're almost at the point where we're going to have to do something similar to that. The, the, you know, the commercial aspect of, of building ships is it takes a huge amount of money to build a vessel. It takes a long amount of time, and you don't see a profit for a long time. And, and as, as shipping firms decrease, you know, we only have really 29 shipping firms left. You know, again, I didn't put this question in there, but, you know, ask, you know, anyone who's, you know, a naval expert, you know, what's the largest American shipping line out there? You know, what are the shipping lines that service Hawaii or, or the East Coast? Uh, or w where are you going to get your goods if you're over there at the main uh, uh, hub in, in, in Fujairah, for example? Uh, and so as these as this decreases, as, as the number of ships decreases, number of firms decreases, as our shipyards begin to uh, contract, it's going to be much more difficult. Uh, it's almost going to take something like a World War One, World War Two kickoff to 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 see a, a construction built and, and, and kind of seed that way. I think if Americans can see the benefit of it, then you're right. I I, I am a huge advocate for getting this information out, but I also think we're a very poor uh, group, uh, the maritime sector in particular, of getting their information out. They love to talk to each other. They don't like to talk outside of each other. Uh, you don't see a lot of, you know, merchant mariners, you know, masters and, and shipping CEOs writing memoirs, getting out there. It, it, it's not a, a big field you tend to see. And so they tend to talk to themselves, not to the outside. And that's another reason to kind of write this piece, is, is to highlight the, the critical nature of, of this uh, of this act, you know, how many MIDIs at Annapolis go through, get a sea power class, get a maritime history class, and learn about the American Merchant Marine, and, and learn about, you know, the, the, a guy like Malcolm McLean, who invents the container, a, sh a truck driver from North Carolina, who in 1958 comes up with the shipping container that revolutionizes the way we move goods on the planet. And it also changes the way we can move goods. Why do why are we seeing collisions in Navy ships? Well, there's issues there, but I would argue that one of the reasons is the world's oceans are becoming much busier. You know, end of the Cold War, the world shipped about four, million, uh, 4 billion tons of cargo. Uh, this year, we probably eclipsed 11 billion tons of cargo moving on the world's oceans. Well, your, your point it, is well taken with respect to the amount of um, awareness that, that – your average Naval Academy midshipman gets uh, about the maritime uh, domain. I mean, we, we had somebody wrote an article a few years ago about at right after the collisions that was helped me out, Bill, this was like, here's what your commercial counterpart is thinking when you are approaching. It oh, was yeah. one of those, those kinds of that articles. That was a chart, charting the course by Kevin Iyer, who interviewed a, a merchant uh, captain, master, uh, you know, and said, hey, what's it, what is, what's the, your view as you see a gray hull ship uh, operating near you, what do you think? Right. And, and the, the, picture wasn't all that pretty right? no, because it's not because if right. you compare the amount of underway time that a master uh, mariner has in his career or her career uh, with the amount of underway time that a u.s navy surface warfare officer has lieutenant 
uh, right. particularly OOD. Lieutenant OOD, right? right? Yeah. It's a, it's a lot less. Yeah, it's but a lot even less. even as a commanding officer, because you know, uh, merch, it's like it's like being a commercial airline pilot versus being a you know a military pilot, right? right? The amount of time that you spend flying, that's what you do when you're in in the com- in, in commercial industry. You fly or you drive a ship, and you don't have to do shore duty. You don't have to be an instructor at the Naval Academy. You don't have to get a master's degree in you know uh, international relations. You don't have to do a Pentagon tour, right? right? And so, but of course, that's not the mission of the Naval Academy, no, right? Of, we're, of we're, we're the other of half of the equation, right? Which is the warfighting part, right? Um, which, as Sal has stated uh, in the premise here, is it would be viewed as the the, the top military naval force uh, worldwide. Um, and we'll also remind the audience, especially our members who have access to our digital archives, that the first issue of Proceedings in 1874 had an article written by Stephen B. Luce about the need for maritime colleges. And from that, both Kings Point and Sunny Maritime were created by Congress. Um, and that sort of set the tone for you know, existential outcomes, consequential outcomes as a, a function of Naval Institute writings. Um, so... Again, Sal, let me let me posit this as an existential uh, jobs issue, not to mention an, a national security issue. And and so you've mentioned that a large percentage, as you again in these first five bullets, a large percentage of foreign flagships use foreign manpower, not American manpower. Um, they don't have to be trained in certain ways. So you can kind of do it on the cheap. Um, what if we were to take a strain and, uh, you know, let's let's make maritime great again and made this into a, you know, America first issue. Um, what would we have to do to the maritime uh, accession source pipeline? And what would we have to do to the infrastructure to create the ships to, uh, you know, take over for where foreign shipping is now doing that job? And how many years do we think this whole thing would take? Well, you could do... Several things. Where these things always get bogged down is the, is the attempt to come up with a huge, all-encompassing strategy that answers every question at one time. And, and that's always a tough thing to do. I have written a few different articles on this and, and talked about it. I'll give you an example, one or two examples here. So, for example, manpower. The, the uh, maritime administrator went before Congress and identified a shortfall of 1,800 mariners in case of a true peer-to-peer conflict we do not have enough senior licensed mariners, the uh, chief mates, captains, senior mates, senior engineers, to run the fleet for more than six months. We're just going to run short. So how do you address that? Well, obviously, more jobs equals more mariners, but how do you get more mariners in a short time? Well, you know, one of the things you modify is, is something called the Passenger, service, uh, uh, Passenger Ship Service Act, Vessel Act of 1887. This is what allows cruise ships to go in and out of the United States. You know, foreign flag cruise ships, uh, you know, the three biggest ones, Carnival, uh, Royal Caribbean, Norwegian Cruise Lines, operate in and out of the United States, and out of their entire fleets, only one vessel is U.S. flagged. But you modify that, that act by saying, you know, any ship that leaves port with more than 100 Americans on board has to have a certain percentage of licensed American mariners on board. And, and you make those firms start hiring American mariners. And now all of a sudden that gets jobs. You know, you start increasing the mariner pool out there, and, and uh, with a good job, too, by the way, operating on a cruise ship. Uh, LNG, we, we've been talking about exporting LNG now for a long time. Believe it or not, back in the 70s and 80s, the Maritime Administration, through the uh, Merchant Marine Act of 1936, subsidized and underwrote the construction of some of the very first liquefied natural gas carriers in the world. 
And for a long time, the U.S. operated a fleet of LNGs, but then that, that fleet fell into dis- disservice. The trade kind of dried up, and there wasn't enough LNG trade. Well, it's up again. And we can see the, the construction. Now, it's, it'll take a while to build an LNG. And so one of the things you may want to do is enact the Jones Act waiver, which the Jones Act, the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, requires ships in the coastal trade to be built in the U.S., flagged in the U.S., crewed by U.S. citizens. You can allow a five-year waiver, bring in foreign-built LNGs until new-built LNGs can replace them in the trade. Uh, the GAO report and, and the Navy is working on recapitalizing the ready reserve force, the, those 61 ships that are laid up by Marriott and, and MSC. You know, back in the 90s, after the first Persian Gulf War, we built 20 large, medium-speed railroads, and we basically either put them in the pre-positioning fleet or we laid them up. Well, how about we build a dozen container ships, a dozen tankers, we build them and not just put them in the reserve fleet, but allow American shipping companies to lease them via U-Haul. You know, hey, I need a, a container ship to haul cargo, uh, but I don't have the money to buy a container ship. I don't have the, the three years to wait to get my profit back. So the U.S. can use that as an active ready reserve force. Uh, they currently do that with the ship now. There was a, uh, a uh, Alaska uh, super ferry that the Maritime Administration took over. She was going to be commissioned into the Na- or into MSC as a ship called the Puerto Rico, but instead she was leased to a commercial firm, and now she operates as a ferry between Canada and New England. But in time of an emergency, we have the right to call that ship back in. Is it better to have a ship operating along the coast and, and running than to have it laid up for 10, 15 years and broken out maybe a few times? So there are a lot of little things you can start doing to start changing the maritime industry. The, the big thing is going to be the willpower and the recognition, too, by the armed services of the critical nature that if there isn't a merchant marine, if there isn't an American maritime presence, that this is going to be a, a game changer when it comes to executing their missions. If you know, you're in Afghanistan and you're waiting for your supplies to come in on a, on a truck, that truck that has that container on the back either brought it into a port in Karachi or Riga or in Vladivostok by a ship that's one of those uh, ships in the maritime security program. And, and I think that visibility is probably one of the big ones, one of the reasons to write this piece and, and for you all to be nice enough to publish it in proceedings. So, Sal, we're running short on time, but I want to ask you one last question, which is about sure. the Jones Act. And you mentioned that, the, the what did you call it, the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. So we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of that. And and some people uh, would point the finger at the Jones Act as, as perhaps the single most uh, detrimental piece of legislation to the merchant marine fleet, the U.S. merchant marine fleet. Tell us your thoughts on the on the Jones Act and and what could be done uh, with some political will to update that. Uh, you know, maybe at the hundredth anniversary of it. Sure. So, uh, so the idea of the Jones Act, and specifically what they look at is Section Twenty Seven, which is the, the the provision that ensures what's called cabotage, which is that coastal trade of uh, only being done by U.S. ships. And this is actually old. It predates 1920. There was a, an act in 1817, and even the very first legislation in the very first Congress deals with giving preference to American ships over foreign ships. Opponents of the Jones Act will always identify the Jones Act as the reason for the decline of the U.S. merchant fleet. It, it, it's not. There's other issues at play. 
the construction of the interstate highway system, the pipeline system, reduced the need for ships to carry goods uh, along the coastal route of the United States. The U.S. always had a coastal fleet to draw upon. That went away. Uh, the decision to construct a 600-ship Navy in the 1980s. Shipyards made a conscious decision. I'm going to go with a Navy contract versus commercial contracts. And so commercial companies were kind of squeezed out of the yards. And then the expiration of what were known as, as differentials, construction and operation differentials, to kind of offset the higher cost to build in U.S. yards and to operate U.S. ships. So, like I said, one of the things about the Jones Act is if you repeal the Jones Act today, are you going to open up U.S. waters to foreign ships? And the answer is yes. Now, there's foreign ships in U.S. waters now. They come in and out of our ports, but now you're going to open up the coastal trade. And more importantly, what you're going to do is, is reduce the, the few remaining maritime shipyards and construction assets that are out there. We're, we are critically short in our ability to repair our own ships. One of, one of the untold stories of World War II was our repair capability and how we were able to get ships repaired and back out to sea in a very quick time. That doesn't exist now. Look how long it's taken to get McCain and, and Fitzgerald back out there. It, it's a critical issue we have. And so the political will of the, of the Jones Act is you can make those changes. Like I said with the LNG, let's, let's do a, a small-term targeted industry, LNG, for example, that will, will put, put aside the Jones Act provision and allow that to come in. Uh, Opponents of the Jones Act will, will identify as the panacea. You remove it, and all of a sudden, maritime industry blossoms. It's not. The U.S. coast has changed. Look at ports around the, the country. Ports in the United States are at capacity. Infrastructure is at capacity. Uh, the, well, if you all of a sudden made it cheaper to move goods up and down the United States, it doesn't mean you're going to be able to move them up and down the United States because the trucking industry, the rail industry, will fight it. We haven't had a gas tax increase since the 1990s. It is cheaper to move goods on land in some ways than it is by sea because of those additional costs. And so the, the Merchant Marine Act of 1920 is, is in my opinion, a, a true national security act because if you repeal it, you're going to open the door for the decline of the U.S. Merchant Marine, the, the, the large ocean-going coastal vessels, and more importantly, the industrial base, which is going to be very hard to replace if you eliminate it entirely. We, we saw that in the 1920s and the 1930s. Uh, we saw it in the 1880s and the 1890s. It's one of the reasons why Proceedings was writing is because of that declining uh, industrial base and the difficulty in building modern Navy ships because the commercial base had declined so precipitously. Well, I've got to give you props, Sal, for your employing a word that I did not know heretofore, thalassocracy. Uh, am I saying that right? Which is a true maritime power. I, I I was unaware of that word. That Did was the original. That, that was the original title, but we couldn't use it in the title. <laughs> <laughs> and also, looking at your bio, you're not just an academic. You also walk the walk as a unlimited tonnage second mate. So you have your marine, uh, merchant marine deck officer's license, and so that's uh, your, your street cred is uh, yeah. is is your street cred game is is right up there. And an adjunct professor at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy as well. So, yeah, uh, Dr. Sal Mercagliano was our guest today. His uh, article is in the August issue of Proceedings. It's called To Be a Modern Maritime Power. This is definitely an eye-opening article that shows the other side of maritime power. 
we tend to think, and, and most of our authors are writing about Navy and Marine Corps and Coast Guard issues, the military side of, of maritime power. But Sal, you have definitely opened our eyes with just an, a, an expert article, but also your commentary today was just fantastic. I learned a lot. So thank you for being a guest on the uh, Proceedings Podcast. We look forward to publishing your second prize uh, essay from this year's uh, CNO Naval History Essay Contest. We'll publish that probably in the November, December timeframe. And until then, uh, maybe we'll get you back on the podcast after that one's published. Um, thanks again for being on the show and uh, give, give you one last uh, parting shot. No, I appreciate the opportunity. I, I was so happy you guys decided to publish this. And again, I think the uh, proceedings and, and, and the Naval Institute is a great forum. I think bringing together the commercial and the military side is so essential for us ha- becoming a true maritime power. I leave you with that one last little tidbit. We have a Navy that is number one in the world, a merchant marine that's number 22. China has a Navy that's number two and a merchant marine that's number two. And you have to ask yourself which one's in the better position uh, to go forward. And I think that's a big question we should all be asking ourselves. Well framed. That's, exactly. that, that's all you need to know. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Sal. And until next week and our 100th uh, episode of the podcast, which we'll record on Monday, don't forget, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.